Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This podcast is brought to you by listeners who have become patrons. It's an exciting process where you can fund the history you want to hear. Patrons receive bonus episodes and guides to each show, as well as early access. Each patron also gets a shout out through the course of the Great Famine series. And in this podcast, I want to thank Martin Nutty, Sharon Sagan, Ed Fogarty, Zanet Hamming, Patricia M., Dave Curran, Amanda Peters, Linda Rosewood and Kerry McNamara. Thanks for your support. I really appreciate it. If you want to get on board and support your history, you can find out more at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. That's Patreon. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Irish podcast. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. And this is The Great Famine, 1845 to 1847. Today's episode returns to the Great Famine series after a long break over the Christmas. Over the course of 16 or so podcasts, I have chronicled this world-changing event that took place in Ireland in the late 1840s. Today's episode focuses on the life of one man who encapsulated the generation of Irish people who lived through the Great Famine, a figure called Daniel O'Connell, a man who towered over life in Ireland in the 1840s. Given it's been two months since the last show on the Great Famine, Daniel O'Connell's life provides a great opportunity to recap on what has happened so far and tie up loose ends before we continue our story and move on to the later phase of the Great Hunger. The show is focused around the final months of Daniel O'Connell's life and in particular his last great speech given in February 1847. We begin though by introducing the most famous Irishman of the 19th century. You will quickly see why he is so pivotal in our story. I would like to thank Tomás for his work in voicing Daniel O'Connell's words in the show. Every generation tends to produce an individual, or in some cases a group of individuals, that symbolise their overall experiences. Such people don't necessarily have to be good or bad, but through their actions they have come to symbolise the lives of millions. 
early 20th century was encapsulated by a group of people whom most of you will recognise. Figures such as Patrick Pierce, James Connolly, Eamon de Valera, Countess Markovich and Michael Collins. These people are inseparable from the 1916 Rising and the Irish struggle for independence. While the early 20th century in Ireland is remembered through this group, the early 19th century was encapsulated in the life of one man who symbolised an entire epoch of Irish history. No other figure from the time even comes close to his stature. At the time and since then, towers above all other figures in terms of symbolising the experiences of Irish people in the first half of the 19th century. Such was his stature that O'Connell was referred to by many as King Dan, and like all such figures, King Dan was a complex man. He was somewhat unique in his personal circumstances. A Catholic by religion, he was also a landlord in a time when most men of this class were Protestants. Nevertheless, Irish Catholics of all classes, rich and poor, many of whom had little in common with the landowning O'Connell, worshipped him. This was largely due to the fact that he had spearheaded the campaign for Catholic emancipation, which when victorious in 1829 had brought to an end centuries of official discrimination. This campaign also saw Connell elected to the House of Commons, where he became one of the first Catholics to take a seat in three centuries. The success of this campaign for emancipation earned O'Connell the title of the Liberator. Having achieved a demand that would have seemed unattainable in his youth, O'Connell then went on to use his considerable influence to focus on the Act of Union. The Act of Union was controversial legislation which came into law in 1801 and had seen Ireland merged into the United Kingdom with the rest of Britain. While the island had been dominated by English rule for centuries prior to 1801, a parliament sitting in Dublin had controlled life on the island and this was now abolished. After the passage of the Act, Ireland was ruled directly from the British Parliament in Westminster. By the 1830s and 1840s, this was proving disastrous for the Irish economy, and from the late 1830s, Daniel O'Connell built a huge movement demanding a repeal of this Act. This campaign reached its peak in 1843, but after the British government threatened to violently suppress the movement when it was due to hold a mass rally outside Dublin, O'Connell fearing bloodshed backed down, and the repeal movement began what was a slow decline. While he dominated political life in Ireland, Daniel O'Connell had his controversial sides. While he would not risk bloodshed on this island, he didn't have such qualms when the blood belonged to others. In 1841 he supported the British government during what was known as the Opium War, a brutal conflict waged by the British army to force China to open up its markets to British opium merchants. Conversely, in his private dealings he was generally seen as a decent person. Although O'Connell was a landlord belonging to a class who were increasingly reviled by many in Ireland, he was well respected by his tenants who lived on his estates near Cahirsaibin in South Kerry he had even allowed those evicted from other estates to settle on his land. This was unusual in an Ireland where tenants and landlords were frequently at odds in disputes marred by extreme violence and assassinations. Yet O'Connell spanned this chasm and indeed it was poor tenants in many cases who labelled him 
King Dan and walked great distances to hear him speak when they, in many cases, wouldn't have opened their own door to see their landlord. In 1845, when the Great Famine began after the failure of the potato crop, O'Connell, being one of the most prominent people on the island, had to fight the Irish corner. Both in Ireland and in the British Parliament, of which he was a member, he made impassioned pleas for aid from the authorities to help the starving poor in Ireland. But few of those equalled what was his final speech to Parliament in 1847. At the age of 72, O'Connell's physical health was failing, and not only the contents of his speech, but his very appearance summarised the desperate plight facing the Irish people. As we will see next, through the course of what was a short speech, he touched on the major points of what had happened in Ireland since the potato crop had first failed in 1845. Given his health was failing, the journey to London must have been an ordeal in a time when travel was slow and difficult at the best of times. Arriving in the capital of the British Empire, O'Connell took up residence in an establishment called the British Hotel on German Street, only a mile across central London from the Houses of Parliament. And on Monday, February the 8th, 1847, O'Connell made his last trip to the Commons to make his final great plea for the starving in Ireland. His audience, the British House of Commons, had never been the most welcoming place for O'Connell. When he first took up his seat in the Parliament in 1829, he had joined Robert Throckmorton as the first Catholic elected to Parliament in three centuries. While Catholics were viewed with suspicion by many in England at the time, O'Connell was doubly so. Not only was the man a Catholic, but he was also Irish, which tainted him in many eyes at the time. However, he had never flinched in the face of the abuse directed at him, even in Parliament. He was derided on numerous occasions for his Kerry accent. He noticeably pronounced certain words in a distinctive manner. For example, when he referred to repeal of the Act of Union, he pronounced it repeal, and while referencing rent, he spoke of rent. However, the mocking he faced over this had never fazed O'Connell. A quick wit, he was always able to give as good as he got. He referred to the powerful Prime Minister of Britain, Sir Robert Peel, as Orange Peel, for his one-time connections to the sectarian organisation, the Orange Order. However, the Daniel O'Connell, who stood before the Commons in 1847, was an increasingly broken man, and given he was symbolising what was a starving generation back in Ireland, perhaps it was apt. The historian Patrick Gagan summarised his condition by early 1847 as follows. He was diagnosed with intense bronchitis and generalised weakness, as well as anorexia, and he had difficulty moving his arms. There was no warmth in his hands, and he was unable to stop his right arm from trembling. The most obvious change was in his voice. It was now faint and feeble, and bore no resemblance to the stirring trumpet of old. King Dan was truly the living, or perhaps dying, embodiment of the country he had come to plead for. Nevertheless, Daniel O'Connell took the floor in the Commons and started his speech as follows. I am afraid the House is not sufficiently impressed with the horrors of the situation of the people of Ireland. I do not think they understand the miseries, the accumulation of miseries, under which the people are at present suffering. It has been estimated that 5,000 adults and 10,000 children have already perished from famine and that 25% of the whole population would perish 
unless the House affords effective relief. O'Connell here was somewhat incorrect. While it's impossible to accurately estimate the exact number of Irish people at risk, he was vastly underestimating the numbers who had already died. By February 1847, the numbers of dead were almost certainly pushing towards 100,000, maybe substantially more. O'Connell surely knew this. The accounts that had emanated from Skibbereen and the wider region of West Cork alone, where dozens were dying each day, was clear proof of the scale of the number of deaths. Perhaps he felt if he reduced the number, though, to a more tangible figure, his fellow members of Parliament would appreciate the horrors facing Ireland better than if he stated the actual astronomical figures which were faceless and hard to grasp. Whatever the case, O'Connell continued to detail the plight of the poor in Ireland. They will perish of famine and disease unless the House does something speedy and efficacious, not doled out in small sums, not in private and individual subscriptions, but by some great act of national generosity calculated upon a broad and liberal scale. If this course is not pursued, Parliament will be responsible for the loss of 25% of the population of Ireland. O'Connell's reference to not doled out in small sums, not in private and individual subscriptions, was reflecting what the British government had done, or perhaps not done, since the Great Famine had begun. By 1847, two British governments had been tasked with handling the Great Famine. The first had been that of Sir Robert Peel and the Conservative Party, who had been replaced by Lord John Russell and the Liberal Party in the summer of 1846. Both had adopted very different approaches with very different results. In the first year of the Great Famine, Robert Peel had been proactive and ordered supplies of Indian maize from the USA in secret. This act had helped to keep the price of food in Ireland down and staved off hunger-related deaths in the early months of 1846. While there is no doubt Peel should have ordered more food, his actions only proved sufficient because he had overestimated the extent of the crisis. It transpired that only 40% of the 1845 harvest was actually lost. He nevertheless did save lives. However, 1846 was the year that saw this crisis develop into a full-scale catastrophe. The losses of the potato crop that year were enormous, with about 80% of the crop being destroyed. This left 3 to 4 million people without food. These were also people who had barely managed to survive the previous winter. To make matters worse, Sir Robert Peel fell from power in the summer of 1846 to be replaced by Lord John Russell and the Liberal Party. They were staunch advocates of free trade who were opposed to government interference in the market, even if this meant importing food into famine-ridden Ireland. Therefore, rather than build on Peel's successful strategy of the previous year, they cut back on imports of food, limiting them to the extreme west where conditions were dire. In accordance with their ideology, they believed the most effective thing to do was to pursue a policy of public works through which they would provide money to the poor who could then use it to buy food. They believed private merchants would meet the demand if the poor had the money to pay for food. This was in short an unmitigated disaster. The work involved was frequently too heavy for starving people while the wages paid, around 8 pence a day, was too low to feed the people in a country where the price of food was soaring. 
No one knows how many died between that summer of 1846 and February 1847 when O'Connell was addressing the Commons, but it was certainly far more than the 10,000 children and 5,000 adults he referenced. Even if he was mistaken, O'Connell was intimately acquainted with the impact of famine though, and next in his speech he detailed the nature of the crisis, one that was increasingly not just about food shortages. The great killer in any famine, disease, was making its presence felt. He highlighted that it was actually in Britain's interest to act, and act very fast. The necessary result must be typhus fever, which in fact has broken out and is desolating whole districts. It leaves alive only one in ten of those it attacks. This fearful disorder before long will spread to the upper classes. The inhabitants of England will not escape its visitations, for it will be brought over by the miserable wretches who escape from the other side of the channel. The calamity will be scattered over the whole empire, and no man will be safe from it. Two millions of human beings will be destroyed if relief is not speedily and effectually afforded. In this passage, O'Connell was highlighting something we often forget. Less than 10% of the one million Irish people who would perish through the course of the Great Famine actually starved to death. Most succumbed to disease long before they could starve. Then O'Connell turned to the increasingly thorny subject about who exactly should pay for relief for the starving Irish. The British government by 1847 were increasingly laying the blame at Irish landlords, men like Daniel O'Connell, who they said should foot the bill and argued they were neglecting their responsibilities back home. O'Connell takes up the story here again. It has been asked why the rich Irish do not relieve the poor. They have relieved them, but the destruction of the potato crop has occasioned a positive annihilation of food, and the people were starving in shoals, in hundreds, aye, in thousands and millions. Parliament was bound then to act, not only liberally but generously, to find out the means of putting a stop to this terrible disaster. It was asserted that the Irish landlords have not done their duty. Several of them have done their duty, others have not. And considering the extraordinary exigency of the case, my plan is to arm government with more real power, to apply to the purpose all the sums they deemed necessary. In this part of his speech, O'Connell was perhaps blinded by his own class background. Some landlords, it is true, had done their bit. He, for example, had purchased 20 tonnes of grain and shipped it to his tenants around Cahar Savine. However, ultimately, Irish landlords would protect themselves as a class, even if it meant large-scale deaths. We will see proof of this later in this very episode, when the landlords of Ireland pulled off a particularly horrendous act, one that O'Connell's own son, who was also a member of Parliament, would support. However, at the end of this particular quote, when O'Connell referenced the fact that the government needed to step in, he was certainly correct. Even if all landlords in Ireland had done everything they could, it's very doubtful whether they had the resources to alleviate the Great Famine by 1847. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now back to Parliament in 1847. Having touched on what had happened in Ireland and how the government and landlords reacted, O'Connell, in what was the typical paternalistic attitude of his class, turned to how poor Irish people were reacting to the Great Famine. The patience of the people of Ireland could not be too much admired. It has been exhibited on all occasions. And the forbearance of the lower orders, considering their almost intolerable privations, was wonderful. As I have detailed in previous episodes in this series, this is patently not true. While O'Connell did want to portray Irish people as helpless victims in need of help, back on the ground in Ireland, people were doing their utmost to wrestle control of their destinies, and by early 1847, upheaval of one kind or another had broken out in most corners of the island at some stage in the previous two years. Some of this was far from admirable, but the impact of hunger was appalling and the starving people were willing to do almost anything to survive. Indeed, in O'Connell's home county of Kerry, the quarterly trials in early 1847 were about to take place and of the 131 cases before the courts, these included nine murders, three cases of parents deserting children, 59 cases of animal theft, six cases of plundering wrecked ships and one case of highway robbery, along with numerous other cases. This was, as the Kerry Evening Post described it, the heaviest calendar within recollection, as crimes of all sorts were on the increase, as people were doing what they had to, to survive the famine. Indeed, I have an exclusive podcast available on Patreon for patrons of the show, which details three reports of cannibalism I found from the period. The rising tension which provoked the increase in crime was reflected in the political landscape as well. Daniel O'Connell's own repeal movement, which had campaigned for a repeal of the Act of Union, was tearing itself apart. In 1846, exacerbated by the horrors of death and disease, long-running tensions within the movement had finally broken into the open when a group known as the Irish Confederation, or Young Irelanders, had split away. One of the key differences between the Young Irelanders and O'Connell was their refusal to commit to pacifism and as we shall see later in the series they go on to organise an armed rebellion in 1848. That said O'Connell himself was not adverse to using implicit threats of violence if he felt it achieved his ends and in his speech on February 8th 1847 he voiced the following concern which was an obvious threat when we're talking about the need for aid in Ireland. He said the people who were peaceful might be driven from misery to madness. As his speech neared its conclusion, 
in what were his final words to the House of Commons, Daniel O'Connell cast his pride to one side and prostrated himself before his former adversaries and begged them to help Ireland. O'Connell concluded, I call upon Parliament to interpose generously, munificently, enormously for the rescue of this country. She is in your hands, in your power. If you do not save her, she cannot save herself. I solemnly call on you to recollect that I predicted with the sincerest conviction that one-fourth of her population will perish unless Parliament comes to their relief. This speech is recognised as a seminal moment. O'Connell, once the fiery orator who had taken no prisoners in the House of Commons, had shown himself, and indeed Ireland, to be desperate. He had begged the British government to take action. He himself epitomised the situation back in Ireland. After concluding his speech, he said to a confidant, I feel I am almost gone. My powers have almost departed me. My voice is almost mute. I am oppressed with grief. Daniel O'Connell left the House of Commons on that Monday, February 8th, 1847. He spent almost the two following months in England, but his health was failing fast. He resolved on a pilgrimage to Rome and left Britain in late March from the port of Folkestone on board a steamer destined for the port of Boulogne in France. After making his way to Paris, he travelled south by way of Orléans, Lyon and eventually Marseille. However, on reaching the Italian port of Genoa in May, he could travel no further. By the middle of that month, O'Connell's condition had worsened and at 9.37pm on May 15th, 1847, the most famous Irish person of his generation died from what an autopsy later determined to be softening of the brain. An Irish priest wrote a letter to O'Connell's family telling them, The father of the country is dead. Rumours of his death reached London a week later and two days following that they reached Dublin on May the 23rd. Given the nature of travel at the time, it would take another few days before these rumours were confirmed and it was generally accepted that O'Connell was dead. One of his last wishes was that his heart be taken on to Rome while the rest of his body returned to Ireland for burial. This created substantial delays between his death and his funeral. Daniel O'Connell's corpse did not arrive in Dublin until early August and he was not buried until two and a half months after his death. His funeral took place in a starving, disease-ridden Dublin, yet the city turned out in huge numbers to bid farewell to the figure that had dominated political life in Ireland for nearly half a century. People living in houses along the way even took out ads in newspapers renting seats at their windows to watch the spectacle. One source put the attendance at 50,000. In accordance with the customs of Victorian society, the cortege was headed up by what was called mutes, individuals who, although they could speak, were hired to look appropriately sad and remain silent. After a ceremony in the pro-cathedral in Dublin, O'Connell was laid to rest in Glasnevin Cemetery. Personally, I don't ascribe to the great man theory of history, which argues that history turns on the feats of single individuals, all too often great men, the way history is written. But the death of Daniel O'Connell in May 1847 was unquestionably symbolic. The symbolism around the fact that the man known as King Dan, the liberator and the father of the country, had died while Ireland was on its knees was hard to miss. Tragically, after his death, things only seemed like they were getting worse.
The last months of O'Connell's life had been haunted by the Great Famine and his funeral took place amid deep and rising political tensions. While O'Connell was lured into his grave, Ireland was going to the polls in the first election since the Great Famine had begun in 1845. The results proved disastrous for Ireland. While people here swung heavily in favour of candidates who supported a repeal of the Act of Union, the results across Britain were alarming. The Liberal Party not only won the election, but a faction who favoured an unsympathetic, hardline approach towards famine relief in Ireland was strengthened. This followed on the heels of major changes in the government's famine relief strategy. In early 1847, the British government had recognised the disastrous nature of their previous policy. Recognising the policy of public works had been an abject failure, they passed what was called the Temporary Relief Act. The Temporary Relief Act provided loans to open soup kitchens across the island. This policy was, by and large, very successful and had stayed the spiralling deaths that seemed out of control. However, the Act was never more than temporary and the long-term plan of the British government was to make the wealthy in Ireland pay for the famine. Their definition of who was wealthy in Ireland was deeply problematic. Many who might have once been comfortable were increasingly impoverished and could no longer afford to help others. From August 1847, this new famine relief policy was put into place. Under a policy called the Poor Law Extension Act, the Irish Poor Law, a system designed before the famine to help the destitute poor, was now made responsible for all famine relief in Ireland. Given this was funded by poor rates, a local tax collected in Ireland, this now made the rich, and I'm using air quotes when I say rich, responsible for famine relief. Everyone who owned or rented lands valued at more than £5 had to pay these rates and this only served to further impoverish a desperate country. Furthermore, the British government who had loaned the money for previous relief schemes, such as the soup kitchens, were demanding their money back, which was to be paid from these taxes as well. While this is more or less where the Great Famine series has reached to date, before I finish this podcast, we need to recall one crucial event. As Daniel O'Connell's heart was being taken to Rome and his body was making its way to Dublin from Genoa, the British House of Commons had passed the Poor Law Extension Act. However, Irish landlords, who had numerous representatives in Parliament, were deeply alarmed by the measure. Under its terms, they would have to pay the poor rates for all their poor tenants who lived on farms valued under £5. In the west of Ireland in particular, decades of subdivision of farms left many landlords with large numbers of tenants who would fall under this threshold. The landlords now acted to protect their interests with a measure known as the Gregory or Quarter Acre Clause. This was nothing short of horrific. It stated that in order to receive famine relief, one had to be destitute and the definition of destitution was owning no more than a quarter acre of land. In short, this meant that all those with holdings valued at less than £5, which was also the very people who were most at risk, now had to choose between receiving famine relief and holding on to their farms. This paved the way for massive evictions, as we will see in the next episode. While Daniel O'Connell may have claimed many landlords had done their part, this indicates a very different story. Even his own son, John O'Connell, not only voted for the measure, but actually spoke for it in the House of Commons. Would the Liberator himself have acted differently? Perhaps, perhaps not. It's largely besides the point. With the Gregory Clause in place, 
Ireland braced itself for a new chapter in the Great Famine, one that would be fought out mercilessly as landlords increasingly did whatever they could to rid themselves of their poor tenants and eviction for many of these people meant death. Next up, we will follow this story into late 1847 and early 1848. While landlords may well have felt they could evict at will, some were in for a rude awakening. In some communities at least, poor people were desperately going to try and hold what little they had. That show will be out in early February, but you can get early access on Patreon. You can find out more at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Irish podcast. Until next time, Sloan. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.